everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have UC Davis law professor Jack Chen. Welcome to our show. Pleasure to be here, David. So it's been kind of a crazy week. Um, and so I wanted to uh, start with some current events and uh, see what your take is on uh, them um, today. And who knows when this will actually air. But today, the uh, Rittenhouse uh, verdict came down. Uh, did you have any thoughts on that one? Well, it's an interesting case, a horrible case. It is an example of a fairly dramatic set of changes to criminal law in the United States in the last 30 or 40 years. It used to be that it was relatively restricted for a private citizen to be able to carry loaded guns on the street. And now, not because of the Supreme Court, or at least not only because of the Supreme Court, and I would say mostly not because of the Supreme Court, State legislatures all over the country have created the right to carry firearms loaded, concealed, whatever, in public. And so, you know, decades ago, somebody like Kyle Rittenhouse, if he was walking down the street with a loaded gun in Kenosha, Wisconsin, would have been stopped and arrested because it would be illegal. But now it isn't. The other big change that's happened is that the law of self-defense has dramatically expanded. And both of these things come from the National Rifle Association. They're lobbying goals of the National Rifle Association. And it used to be that there was kind of a a set of variations in self-defense law in the United States. In some places, if somebody wanted to claim self-defense, they would bear the burden of proving the defense to a preponderance of the evidence. In other states, the state prosecutor would have to disprove the defense beyond a reasonable doubt. But there were all kinds of variations. Went to the Supreme Court in the early 90s and the US Supreme Court said, it's fine for Ohio at the time to put the burden of proof on the defendant. You know, if you kill somebody, it's not unconstitutional to make you justify the legitimacy of that killing. Since the Supreme Court decided that case and since the 1970s and the early 1980s, all states have gone to 
the change the burden of proof. So the the law now requires the prosecution to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. And what that means functionally, practically, is if the jury says, you know, we think that this person committed a cold-blooded murder, preponderance of the evidence. In fact, we think it's 75% chance that this person committed a cold-blooded murder. You know, we think there's clear and convincing evidence that this person committed a cold-blooded murder. But what they're supposed to do is say, is there a 5% chance or a 10% chance, whatever a reasonable doubt is, that the person was acting in self-defense? And if there's some reasonable chance that the person was acting in self-defense, even though we don't think they were, we are required to, to acquit them. So that's the law in, in all 50 states now. It's designed to let people use self-defense more freely, pull the trigger more freely. And of course they can pull the trigger because of the changes in gun laws and they're more, much more likely to be able to carry a gun. And so the, the Rittenhouse case, I think is went in, to some extent, just the way the legal changes that have been pressed uh, 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 in, intended them to go. And, and you know, is this a, a good thing because it makes it more difficult for the state to put people in cages? Uh, or is it a bad thing? I think it's complicated. I think it's complicated. I will say what concerns me very much is that self-defense is going to be applied politically and racially. And I think I, I think it's, you know, uh, there, there's a, a legal scholar named Cynthia Lee at George Washington, who is an expert in self-defense, and she all advocates in sort of testing out what's really going on in cases like this to reverse the races. Uh, now, there, were, there was no race issue in the Kyle Rittenhouse case, but there was a political issue. And if we go back to a case like Bernard Goetz, uh, who I trust all of your listeners will know, uh, was a, a uh, youngish white male who shot uh, several young African-Americans uh, on the subway in New York in the early 80s. And he was acquitted, just like Kyle Rittenhouse. And, and Cynthia Lee suggests we switch the race. Can we imagine an African-American person with an unlicensed gun who shot several white youths uh, getting acquitted? And, you know, my personal belief is that it's that the lenient, you know, the, these lenient laws that say you can carry a gun and you can use the gun, um, I, I think there's a significant risk that they're not going to be applied in a neutral manner. Um, and my big concern with all of this is, is that we have kind of two things going on. One is that you have this young man who's walking around carrying a gun and then, um, you know, carrying a gun at a protest or you could argue a riot, um, but one or the other. And, and so we have all these right to carry gun laws, but we also have all these active shooters. So if you see this young man uh, walking down the street and he looks like a little boy, right? You know, he's got a baby face. Um, and uh, I'm not putting him down. I had a baby face when I was 17. Some would still say I do. Um, but, you know, 
you look at him and you're probably not thinking, oh, he's here to protect the property. You're, you're probably thinking, um, is this guy going to start shooting everybody up? And I know if I were there, like as a reporter covering this, I'd be afraid to, uh, you know, if I saw some guy walking around with a gun. And at my age, I'm probably just running away um, because, you know, uh, I'm at that point. But probably when I was younger, I'm probably the guy rushing him. Um, and, and so at some point, we're going to see a whole bunch of these kind of shootings because nobody can tell the difference between the guy who's there to protect the property versus the guy who's there to massacre everyone. And giving somebody the benefit of the doubt means that you end up dying if you guess wrong. Am I getting this wrong or? No, I think you're identifying very real risks. And there's a long tradition of uh, accidental shootings based on mistaken identity. And there, and there are certainly situations where two police officers, or let's say two undercover police officers or plainclothes police officers who don't know each other, encounter each other in the middle of the night under suspicious circumstances. Uh, and they both might be legally authorized to shoot the other person because of their lack of knowledge of what's really going on. Now, the thing is that they're trained. The police are trained to uh, identify each other in those kinds of situations. Uh, and they're trained to make judgments about when to shoot and when not to shoot. And the problem is that when we expand the number of people who have guns from highly trained professionals who have some uh, uh, disciplinary authority over their activities, some supervision, uh, to 17-year-olds who are, you know, completely incompetent, um, or 18-year-olds, then we're, we're going to have people uh, who are confused and who are not expert in resolving this these kinds of situations and who are heavily armed. Uh, and, and they might shoot themselves or other people, each other or other people, and they may well not be criminally liable for it. But that's, you know, to say, well, there's no crime here is hardly to say it was a good thing. I think, I think there's the Rittenhouse shootings I'm not going to sit here and say it wasn't self-defense. The self-defense law is very broad. I'm not going to say the jury did the wrong thing. But I will say none of this should have happened. It, it shouldn't have happened. Uh, and a, a police officer, a trained police officer, would not have been in that situation because Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, uh, I think there's a good argument, uh, uh, went to the gun unnecessarily. Um, did he feel that he was being subjected to deadly force? Maybe. But before somebody goes roaming around making those kinds of decisions, it would be great if they were trained. Oh, and we've even seen uh, trained police officers uh, make mistakes too. Sure, sure. You see trained police officers make mistakes. Uh, on the other hand, Put another way, there are plenty of trained police officers who would be legally entitled to use force, uh, including deadly force, and they don't do it because they don't think it's necessary right then and there, you know. Uh, and so, to some extent, there's a, there's a, a adverse selection for these self-defense cases because there are some people, and Kyle Rittenhouse may be one of them, based on his statements that he 
wanted to shoot shoplifters. I understand he said that. The cases that get to court are the ones in general that are skewed, you know, where the setting is is uh, a, a little bit more likely to use force. Well, I want to um, move on because there's so much. Um, did you follow the Julius Jones saga at all? No. Um, the the execution that didn't happen yesterday in Oklahoma, um, where Julius Jones, most well, the Innocence Project and death penalty advocates, anti-death penalty advocates, believe that it's probably innocent. Um, the um, Oklahoma Commission on Pardons and Commutations, or whatever they they call it. Uh, recommended uh, a commutation and the governor waited until four hours before um, he uh, was scheduled to be executed yesterday before pulling the trigger on the commutation, but he did it in a very limited way. Um, he, he issued the commutation, gave him LWAP basically, and then precluded anyone else from uh, uh, from basically doing anything else. He couldn't be pardoned, couldn't be commuted, um, couldn't be paroled in the future, um, which uh, has, you know, most of the media is kind of focused on the fact that he waited until four hours before, um, you know, the guy's already had his last meal and everything else, uh, which, uh, you know. Psychological it, it, torture. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but. I'm kind of really curious about the legality of whether the governor can actually have the power to preclude future governors from acting. I think that's a significant legal question, and I would doubt it. And if the innocence, if popular opinion, public opinion comes to the conclusion that this person is actually innocent, then I think there has to be a way for the legislature for the court system to, to react to it. Uh, I did not follow the case closely. I did see the headlines and the, and the last minute reprieve. But you know, there's a lot of cases like that and, and this sort of Solomonic decision where you know, it's not justice either way, right? Because if he's guilty, well, I don't believe in the death penalty. So if he's guilty, it's justice. He stays in prison for, for the rest of his life. Um, but you know, the, the, but if, if what it is, is, gee, we have substantial doubts about guilt, but maybe he's guilty, you know, is that the kind of case where people are supposed to stay in prison for the, for the rest of their lives? Uh, it, it really would be better, I think, to, to, you know, figure out, to take seriously this question of, is he guilty? Is he not guilty? And if he's not guilty, let him go entirely. In, this, in the Jim Crow South, uh, uh, and, and even since then, you know, there has been this tradition sometimes of, you know, when the judge thinks the person's innocent, when the judge thinks the African-American man who's charged with a serious crime like rape of a white woman or, or uh, murder is innocent, they'll, they'll be convicted, but they'll be sentenced to life. You know, well, is that really the right solution? If, if uh, there's substantial doubts about guilt. Um, so I, I, you know, uh, on the other hand, you know, there, there are close cases sometimes where the person is guilty 
And if the jury finds that the person's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, that's our, that's our system. What I hate is the cases, though, where somebody's found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in 1987 or 1995, and the case completely falls apart and could not be retried again because the key witnesses uh, recant their testimony and the, and this, uh, the scientific experts or the police witnesses are discredited and not reliable. So the case couldn't possibly be retried, but, but there's no way to get back into court. And so the murkiness is, is just left. Eh, that's our system. It's just somebody's life, right? Um, I, I mean, you know, I had a mixed reaction because it's like, okay, yay, he's not dead. Uh, but then what in the world is all this? I mean, let the system work, right? I mean, if, if the guy didn't do it, get him out of there. And, and I don't know the details of Oklahoma clemency and pardon law. But I think, it's very, I think it's very difficult for one legislature or one governor to completely tie the hands of the future lawmakers. Uh, it's, it, it, it's undemocratic, and uh, I'd be surprised if that was the result. Um, so the other big news this week, um, probably uh, surprising news too, uh, is the... Uh, the exoneration of the two men uh, convicted, uh, two of the three men, I guess, uh, convicted of killing uh, Malcolm X uh, way back in the early 60s. Um, you have a take on that? Well, you know, it, it's, it's great to see Cyrus Vance doing the right thing. Uh, he's, had his, he's had his problems with regard to the Central Park Five uh uh and, and other cases but uh you know so what went on is that is that uh the fbi and the intelligence units in the new york police department concealed evidence from the people being charged with these murders because with the murder of malcolm x because there were larger investigative and political issues and they just wanted some people to be convicted in the case to be put to bed and move on. And they didn't want to reveal their undercover officers and their undercover informants uh, in the community. And um, it's, it's, it was completely illegal then. It remains completely illegal and uh, sort of contrary to what we expect the police and the FBI to do, which is on the one hand to put people in prison who are guilty, but also to not put people into prison who are not guilty. So it, it, it's the kind of travesty that, uh, of justice that we've seen uh, uh, from the FBI and from the New York Police Department uh, in those years. And it's certainly not the only case. There was a huge scandal with the FBI in Boston and the Winter Hill Gang and a bunch of the the members of organized crime in Boston were informants and so they were protected and they were uh, uh, aided by the FBI in framing uh, other people for crimes that they committed. And, um, you know, uh, uh, also in the 60s and 70s, a long time ago. And so what comes to mind to me, you know, 
there, there's an old saying that the wheels of justice grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. And so with a miscarriage of justice, like the, the uh, uh, wrongful treatment of these people charged with killing Malcolm X, you know, the, the world wouldn't let it go from, from lawyers representing these people, and they were paroled previously, uh, to documentary filmmakers. You know, there was just something wrong with the situation and the world didn't let it go. And ultimately uh, there were answers. Uh, and what it brings to mind for me is what's, what's going on now uh, in, in 2021 that we're gonna learn in 2051 or 2061. Because it all, one of the things about our system is that it seems to me that it fairly frequently, you know, we get these exposés about the bad old days and the terrible things that were happening uh, uh, two generations ago. Uh, you know, everybody involved is retired and the statute of limitations has run. Uh, people are, are, uh, have gone to their reward. Um, um, but, but when people are seriously railroaded for serious crimes, we're not talking about getting a traffic ticket that you didn't really deserve. You know, we're talking about being convicted of murder and sent to prison for life. Uh, uh, those things are never forgotten. And so, uh, you know, I hope we're doing a better job now. I, I, and I think we probably are. I think some lessons have been learned, but have they been learned sufficiently? I wonder. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good point. Although um, I would argue as kind of a student of history that J. Edgar Hoover's kind of it's his own unique uh, character unto himself. Um, uh, in American history. Uh, but, you know, I think that gets me into kind of some of your, your work um, because one of the things that you uh, have been working on is the sentencing clinic at UC Davis, which actually evaluates some of these things, uh, hopefully, you know, uh, sooner than 55 years after the fact. Um, but can you kind of talk about what you guys are doing and, and what the focus is? Yes. So the Aoki Criminal Justice Practicum is a class that's been in operation for a few semesters now. And originally we were approached by the Yolo County District Attorney, Jeff Reisig, and his chief deputy, Jonathan Raven, uh, and asked if we would uh, uh, get students involved in evaluating cases for sentence reduction. And, and uh, Jeff being a good negotiator said, look, you don't have to do it. If you don't wanna do it, I'll just take it to some other law school. And I was like, no way, we, you know, we want this. So, so we did it and uh, I, I'm involved in, teach, in teaching it uh, as is Hillary Blout, who is the founder and executive director of a nonprofit called For the People which is an expert in this area. And Hillary, was, uh, who was a former prosecutor in the San Francisco District Attorney's Office, was one of the prime movers before, uh, for a law that allows prosecutors in California to recall a sentence for resentencing uh, to a lower term. And basically, the, the cases that we're getting referred, we do not take 
cases from individuals. We take cases from district attorney's offices. Uh, and the cases that we get referred are cases where the prosecutors got convictions at some point 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Sometimes it's the, the, the very prosecutor who got the conviction is the one that will refer it to us. And they, they think to themselves, you know, in retrospect, the sentence is too long. In retrospect, the sentence is too long. Uh, and they ask us to look at the facts, to look at the person's record in prison and their efforts at rehabilitation and their efforts to prepare themselves for lawful work. And, um, and we uh, investigate the cases. Uh, we work with the public defender to find out what the individual has to say. And we prepare a presentation for the district attorney and we, and we uh, explain the pros and cons uh, of um, whether this person should get a lower sentence. And um, California sentencing law is quite brutal. It has a lot of enhancements and strikes and other things uh, that can allow a person who has not killed anybody to wind up with an enormous amount of time. You know, most of the people that we're asked to evaluate, we look into their prison records and we find that they've done very well in prison. They don't have rules violation reports, RVRs, they call them. At least they don't have any recently, or they have ones for minor offenses. We saw a case, it's a rules violation to speak in class in a disruptive way. And that can can get you punished or sent to some. You wish you had that. Well, you know, I'm thinking about proposing that as a new rule here at, at King Hall, but uh, uh, but uh, it, it's been very interesting, and you know, we see we see people who just a, a very typical type of case is somebody who didn't have a lot of parental guidance and had some minor scrapes with the law. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, frankly, I consider shoplifting, stealing a bicycle, breaking into a commercial building to steal, you know, something. It's not good. It's not legal. Uh, as a prosecutor, I have prosecuted those kinds of cases. But if a 15, 16, 19, 20-year-old does it, it doesn't necessarily indicate that there's somebody who needs to be in prison for the rest of their lives. Uh, that, those aren't the cases that, you know, that, that get them the life sentence, but that's the background. And then they do a thing. Um, they, they go into uh, a, a 7-Eleven with uh, a, a finger gun. They put their finger in their pocket and they say, I got a gun, and give me all the money. And that's a, a completely unacceptable behavior. It's very traumatic for the person who's victimized. We can't have businesses getting robbed. If, a, if anyone does that, they need to be held accountable. But the question is, should they, if you do that one, two, three times, we, we, we had a case where somebody uh, got addicted to drugs uh, and did not 
take the benefit of their first probationary sentence. They did not take the benefit of their first short stint in prison and they were still addicted to drugs and they kept doing uh, finger robberies. And they did three or four more and they were sentenced essentially to, to life. Um, and after 20 years in prison uh, of a good record and not doing anything wrong and preparing themselves uh, to support themselves through lawful work and addressing the, the substance abuse problem, you know, uh, we were asked to evaluate the case. We presented it to the district attorney. The district attorney agreed that it would be appropriately resentenced and the, the person was released. When that person was 25 years old and was doing this bad stuff, they should, they have to be stopped. You cannot, we cannot allow that just to continue without some sort of response. But when the person's 50 and they have a good, you know, yeah, they were sentenced to life, but they have a, a at, at this point, they have changed. They're no longer in that position. Uh, uh, and what this law says is they don't have to stay in for the rest of their lives if the district attorney and the court uh, are persuaded by our analysis that it is consistent with public safety and consistent with humane treatment of these people, which is also a consideration in my opinion, uh, uh, it, it, that they have earned their way out. So it's a really, it's a really uh, uh, interesting experience for the students to see uh, the life course. You know, my students are, uh, some of them are, are privileged. You know, their parents went to college and they went to college. And, but the ones who didn't, uh, and they're, you know, I have had plenty of first generation, plenty of uh, undocumented students, um, um, migrant workers, refugees, all, all kinds of people, but they're super lucky and accomplished and talented also, right? Because they went to college and they uh, are in law school and they're going to do great, you know, and, 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 and so the, the people who wind up in prison have had a different set of breaks and a different set of life experiences for the most part. And yet we see, we see their humanity and we see their efforts. And when you see the kinds of traumatic situations that they grow up in, you know, uh, it's hard not to imagine how you, uh, you know, uh, as a student or a lawyer looking at that situation, you know, would you have done any better? Uh, it's tough. It's tough for a lot of these people. So, so that's the clinic. And we're also looking at, at cases for the Pima County Attorney's Office in Arizona. Um, uh, and, and those, uh, a lot of them are similar. And some of them were also doing um, innocence, wrongful conviction cases for them. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you um, about uh, some of the work in, in Pima County. We've had uh, Laura Conover on a few times on uh, on this show, and uh, uh, it sounds like uh, she uh, was interested in uh, looking at uh, a number of wrongful conviction cases. Has anything come out of that yet, or is it too soon? Well, Laura Conover was was my student and uh and now she's my boss and she has very graciously allowed me and my students to work on uh some of her cases and um it's 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 been great and i and i think the students 
have been really helpful uh, to the Pima County Attorney's Office. Um, we've had a number of meetings to talk about cases. Um, we are, we are uh, actively, my students and I, looking at some cases where at, at first glance, there are questions that we have about whether the, the, the judgment was just. Um, and so in terms of what's come out of it yet, um, you know, some little things have come out of it. We've, um, we've filed uh, some petitions for marijuana expungement, which is a, a new thing that's going on in Pima County. We have evaluated some cases where a person was arrested for a crime, sometimes an ugly crime, but then two days later, the charges are dropped. Uh, and there's no automatic expungement for that sort of thing, but you can go through a process. Uh, and if the county attorney agrees, it's, it's a lot easier to get you know, a, a, an arrest expunged. We've, we've agreed to some of those after looking into it and seeing that probably, well, some of them are situations where it's understandable why the person was arrested, but when the police continue their investigation, they say, oh, okay, this wasn't what it looked like at first, no charges. Uh, and you know, if, if it's something kind of ugly, like if you get arrested near you know, a, 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 a large amount of drugs, uh, and so you're charged with possession of more than one kilogram of cocaine, you're arrested for possession of more than one kilogram of cocaine, but then everybody says that person was just walking down the street and so they, they, they let you out of jail that night. Um, you know, okay, it's, it's, it's great that you're not going to go to prison for something that you didn't do, but, but if every time you uh, go through a background check, which is more and more these days, you know, they say you were arrested for possessing a kilogram of cocaine. That's a bummer. Uh, that is going to affect, it very well might affect your ability to rent an apartment, to get a job, to, uh, to get a, uh, uh, you know, a, a finger, pass a background check. So to get the, the arrest off your record is worth something, um, you know, even though you never went to prison. It's worth a lot. And I, I don't think people realize, like, my wife got arrested in Texas for union organizing. Uh, they uh, basically sat down in the middle of the street and got arrested. And it went down as a misdemeanor. And every single time uh, we've had to do a background check, including for adopting our kid, we had to get a waiver from the FBI, the Justice Department, in order to clear the background check. And that's for something that most people would consider completely innocuous. Right. Uh, the, the, the background check problem is, is enormous. So I don't know if you know, but uh, uh, I'm a founder and board member and former president of the Collateral Consequences Resource Center. And we've been working on collateral consequence reform in various ways for, for 20 years. And um, we, you know, we came up with a model law that, 
that says that charges that don't lead to conviction, an arrest, indictment, if it doesn't lead to conviction, it should be automatically expunged. It should be automatically eliminated. There might be some exceptions. There might be some people who could still get the information in certain circumstances for law enforcement purposes. But when we're talking about arrests that don't lead to conviction, uh, it's insufficiently reliable, uh, insufficiently probative to ruin people's opportunities to have a decent place to live or a decent place to work. Uh, and so, so this is something that uh, more and more states are thinking about, and, uh, uh, and I hope that will continue. I wanted to jump back to uh, YOLO for a second. Um, did you guys work on the Renwick-Drake uh, case? No. Okay. That was interesting because that was one that I had actually covered when it went to trial. I've been around long enough now that these things come full circle on me. And, um, you know, that was, that was an interesting case because when it, it came up, he was a 15-year-old kid. Um, it was pretty obvious that he was not the instigator. Uh, it was like a robbery, gang, attempted murder case. And so the jury ends up acquitting him on the attempted murder. He ends up... Um, getting convicted on the robbery and uh, the gang, even though it was questionable he was ever in a gang, he was basically following an older kid around and didn't have enough supervision. Um, he ends up, you know, with one of these lengthy sentences. And frankly, you know, under current California law, he wouldn't even have uh, been in adult court in the first place. He would have uh, been charged now as a juvenile. He'd be in for whatever you know, two, three, four years, and then, uh, you know, be on his merry way. So, you know, these, these look backs are a really powerful way to also, you know, fix things that are were miscarriages of justice, even at the time. I think, I think a lot of these sentences are, are hard to justify. Um, uh, you know, even at the time, not just in retrospect, but even at the time, you know, the, the, these life sentences for, for nonviolent drug offenses, um, I don't get it. I don't get it. When we're talking about violent crime, there has to be uh, substantial accountability. But again, um, there, there also has to be proportionality. And, and some sort of relationship between the seriousness of the harm and the seriousness of the misconduct and the sentence. And the way that these sentencing laws are set up in a lot of states, the prosecution can just stack enhancements and, and stack charges and subdivide things and, uh, and, and figure out a way uh, uh, to get an enormous amount of time. And, and you know, to the Yolo County DA's credit, they don't have to come back and look at these cases. They're not obligated to file these motions. The defendant cannot file one of these motions to recall a sentence. They don't have the power to do it. And so uh, I, I think it really is um, um, to the Yolo County District Attorney's Office's uh, great honor that they're, that they're saying, okay, you know, we had a certain view of things in the late 80s and early 90s and 
maybe beyond. And now we've developed some additional perspective on how long the sentences in these kinds of cases should be. And, you know, I think that, I think the trick is um, that like cases should be treated alike. And I don't think it should matter if you were in Yolo County or some other County. Uh, uh, and I don't think it should matter if you can hire a lawyer to uh, lobby for you, or if you have a good public defender who lobbies for you, because of course the public defender can't file one of these motions to recall a sentence, but they can call the district attorney's office and say, do you remember Jane Jones? You know, can we look at, at this case? And let me tell you, Jane Jones has a great record and blah, 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 uh, great record in prison. You know, they can, a lawyer can at least get a district attorney's office to look at something. They can flag it. Um, um, but, you know, there, for, for, for every uh, uh, Renwick Drake Jr. who gets out, there are probably more than one, there's probably more than five who also have similar kinds of claims, but can't get them heard. And so I really, I really hope, you know, that, that, that there's more and more sort of second look at people who are in prison now and, and do they need to be there? Listen, I well know that some people do need to be in prison. I was involved in the prosecution of uh, uh, Joseph Paul Franklin, a racist serial killer um, who killed two young African-American men in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio in 1980, but he killed a, a lot of other people around the country. And he, was, he just enjoyed murdering, murdering people because of, uh, uh, of, of their race or the fact that they were members of an interracial couple or something like that. Uh, uh, and there was, there's no way that he should have been out, uh, uh, on the street. And so, I, so I get that, uh, even though, as I told you before, I don't support the death penalty. So I, uh, I, I did not support his uh, execution as he, as he ultimately was, he was, uh, he, his brain had been severely damaged by beatings from his parents. Um, so yeah, there's some people who can never be out on the street. But there are, there are lots of others who can. There are lots of others who age out of crime, who, who, who do really, really bad things, things that we don't understand and we, and we justly condemn when they're teenagers or in their early uh, 20s, but they change. Some people change. If they don't change, then they can stay in prison. But if they do change, then, then I think the system has to be prepared to say, uh, we're going to take a second look at your situation and we're not going to spend the money to incarcerate you or, or punish you for no good reason if you could be a contributing member of society on the outside. And just, you know, I, I completely agree um, with what you're saying. I mean, I think personally, you know, I think it's a very small number of people that never need to, you know, see the light of day again. Um, but, you know, I've talked to enough people, you know, who have committed very serious crimes, you know, attempted murder, even murder, and they, they're able to turn their life around, you know, the light comes on, or, or they get education, or they, they find religion, or 
they find a purpose um, and they kind of get over their childhood trauma uh, eventually and they start doing really productive things. It seems like, you know, we have a system that we can, we can kind of ferret out the, the people that, you know, have actually made legitimate changes in their life versus the people that, you know, really, you know, continue to scare the dickens out of us. Right. Um, <laughs> right. Right. No, I, I, I agree. And, uh, you know, um, I'm not prepared to say that we should abolish prisons. But I am prepared to say, that in my opinion, they should be a much smaller institution than they are. Well, I think I'm gonna uh, leave it at that. Um, wanna thank you for coming on. I think we could talk all day about this stuff. Uh, at least I could. Um, well, it's, yeah, I could too. And I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you, David. And, uh, uh, you know, hopefully um, the news in the next week will be a little less exciting. Yeah, well, it keeps, uh, it keeps people reading, though. So, you know, that's always a good thing. Well, thank you, uh, Jack Chin from uh, the UC Davis uh, School of Law. Um, runs a number of clinics. Um, we, we talked a little bit about the sentencing clinic. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald, and join us again next time for more tales from the injustice. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.